Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. This is the podcast that we explore racing history, cool machines, and the great gearhead world that we live in. On today's episode, we travel back to 1959 and relive the most incredible upset in American road racing history. It was the day that Roger Ward drove a dirt track midget against the finest sports race car drivers and sports cars in the USA and took home the win and the cash prize. Let's get dorky here on the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 2 of the Dorkomotive Podcast, and as I said in the intro, we're going back to 1959 on this show, and I feel like you're going to really enjoy this story of what I do consider the greatest upset in American road racing history. I'm Brian Loans, your host. For those of you that uh, are unfamiliar, I am the editor-in-chief of Bankshift.com, a large online car blog that's been around for about 10 years. I am the lead announcer for the NHRA on Fox, so NHRA Drag Racing is uh, where you can see my face mostly, and I also announce races all around the country and do a bunch of other car-related stuff. But uh, as I mentioned in the first episode, kind of an amateur historian, love looking back at some of the more unique and interesting stories, machines, and people in motorsports history. So for this episode, we're kind of continuing on the road racing theme we had in the first episode. Kind of weird for a drag racing guy to do two road racing style shows back to back, but uh, it is what it is. And again, it's a great story. So we have to understand and kind of define some of the terms and and kind of explain some of the people we'll be talking about to tell the story. And the first one is going to be the words Formula Libre. When we talk about road racing, um, we normally talk about different classes, very specific categories, whether we're talking about sports car racing or uh, open wheel style competition. You know, everything's pretty pretty well divided up. Formula Libre was this concept that came about um, before the 1950s, but really was kind of popularized in the 50s and has been used in a few different instances over the course of history, which is basically a kind of um, froofy way of saying, run what you brung. So Formula Libre road races meant that virtually anything and everything could show up and race. The only real qualification was that the vehicle you brought had to have been or had to be part of a recognized racing series. And so um, you, you could bring a one-off home-built special so long as it had been raced in some sort of competition, whether it was a stock car or it was a midget, as the case may be, in this story or whatever else. As long as it was actively raced, you could enter this event. Now, the event was put on by USAC, which was uh, a massive sanctioning body for particularly for dirt track racing. And of course, they sanctioned uh, the Indy 500 for many, many years as well. And the reason this race was put on in 1959 at Lime Rock and the way it was put on was to raise awareness about road racing, to help popularize it and to put up money. There was a $5,000 prize to win this event, which was very rare at that time. Road racing, you know, was seen really as... uh, a sport that was pretty much dominated by, you know, rich guys that would go out there and just kind of have fun. It was not about the money as much as it was about the honor and the prestige of going out there and, and flogging on your stuff. For the kind of definition of the of the money, $5,000 in 1959 is the equivalent of forty five grand today. That was a huge prize, especially when people were racing for nothing but trophies the vast majority of time when they went road racing. So this was meant to be a spectator event. It was meant to draw big names and big cars and big people in, and it did just that. So now that we know kind of what Formula Libre is, the fact that it's this wide open format, we need to talk a little bit about the track where this happened. Because when we talk about big upsets in racing, whether it's drag racing or whether it's road racing or stock car racing or these really surprise victories. It's a triangle of things that has to happen. You have to have the right people, of course. You have to have some sort of a compelling machine, and you also have to have the right racetrack. And the reason 
why Roger Ward was able to do what he did in 1959 was because of the fact that Lime Rock is a very unique road course uh, in the United States. It's short. It's only a mile and a half long. And um, actually, technically a little bit less probably than a mile and a half, but right around 1.47, 1.48 miles around. And the straightaways are very short, and the turns are not are not very tight. So um, what you have here is a layout that is interesting because of the mechanical aspects of the midget we're going to talk about were actually ideally suited to this type of a racetrack it didn't do anything to hamper the midget's ability to to race now um you'd think okay well the sports cars are definite at a definite advantage here and they would certainly seem like it um at every level and we'll get into the specifics of why in just a few minutes but the coolest part about this thing is that the, the racetrack the machine and the person driving roger ward um all came together this perfect kind of triangle uh pyramid if you will of success and that is how they were able to pull this incredible victory off which people do still talk about today the old timers at lime rock still have recollections whether they are accurate or not of this event and to talk about how much of a big deal it was and how successful it was in terms of profile raising for sports car racing in America, um, this thing was reported on everywhere. Sports Illustrated will be referencing a, a Sports Illustrated story in a while for some quotes, and you know they covered it end to end. So that was a big deal. Um, and really, anything Roger Ward did in the late 1950s and early 60s was a big deal, and now would probably be a great time to explain why. You know, to a lot of people, Roger Ward was an American hero on the racetrack in the 1950s and into the 60s. He was a two-time winner of the Indian Indianapolis 500, and he was a guy who was a P-38 fighter pilot in World War II, just kind of one of these almost Captain America-type guys that seemed indestructible, and he lived um, a lot of his life like he felt like he was indestructible as well. He was kind of a notorious party guy, um, drank a lot, kind of partied very hard, and had that reputation up until 1955 and what happened in 1955 was a, a big tragedy and one of the biggest shocking tragedies in American racing history which was during the Indy 500 um, a guy named Bill Vukovic was killed and Bill Vukovic was um, one of the most famous if not the single most famous race driver in America because of how much success he had had at the Indy 500 he was beloved everywhere and during the 55 Indy 500 Roger Ward's car broke an axle uh, he swerved across the racetrack, and then all of a sudden, Vukovic came up behind him, had to swerve, and unfortunately for Bill Vukovic, he launched up the banking and out of the racetrack. So he basically flew completely out of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and was killed. When that happened, it was an immediate change in Ward's life. Um, the guy kind of adopted a much more clean lifestyle, and his racing career flourished because of it. He was... Um, he was a guy who was almost kind of saw that he had a second lease on life. He became kind of a, a spokesperson. He became a role model for kids. And while he still had his rough edges as a race car driver, as a human being, the guy came right around full circle. Um, he won the Indy 500 twice. He won it in 59 and 62. He was one of the most dominant midget racers in history. And he actually ran a couple of Formula One races as well after all was said and done. But the end of the day here is that Roger Ward was the perfect guy to drive this car for a couple of reasons. From the race promoter's perspective, uh, he was a draw. He had won the Indy 500 
This race that we're talking about was held in July, so it was only a couple months before he wins the Indy 500 in uh, in May, making him one of the most famous people in America instantly and a very famous, uh, a very famous just kind of public face. You got to remember something. This is before the space program, so the guys that raced in the Indy 500 were the astronauts of their day. They were the explorers pushing the boundaries of technology and speed and safety and Obviously, it was quite dangerous. People died at a very high clip during this era in racing. So, a guy like uh, a guy like Roger Ward winning the Indy 500, unlike today when the guy gets the headline and then by Tuesday you forget who won the race. Um, back then, you were lionized. You were a national hero, talk show circuit, front page of the newspaper, ticker tape parade in your hometown, the full pull. So for the race uh, organizers, USAC, and a couple of other independent parties, one of which being Chris Economaki, um, they saw some dollar signs on Roger Ward. So on top of whatever winnings he would have got, Ward was guaranteed a $2,000 appearance fee, which again, we go back, we talk about five grand being about $45,000, $50,000. So basically, Ward was going to slide twenty-five grand in his pocket to come race at this event. He did not plan on racing the event in the midget car, though. The way that that came about is a very interesting story that involves a New York car dealer and the original manager of Lime Rock Park named John Fitch. Ever the promoter and a guy who certainly wanted to make a big splash as possible at this race, Chris Economaki got with a man named Charlie Kreisler, who was uh, a very wealthy New York car dealer, a guy who was into sports car racing, and somebody who had uh, a very nice Alfa Romeo world-class race car available to drive. So Economaki gets a hold of Kreisler, gets a hold of Ward, says, hey, we got to have lunch together. I think I can get you in Charlie Kreisler's Alfa Romeo to compete at this event. Okay. Roger Ward flies on his own dime from Los Angeles all the way to New York, and they meet for lunch. And as they're having this lunch meeting, uh, Chrysler gets a phone call, and he leaves the room, comes back in and says, Sorry, guys, uh, the car is no longer available. I've offered it to John Fitch, and John's going to drive it, and you guys are out of luck. Roger Ward was very angry. He felt disrespected. He had spent his own money to get there. Economaki was kind of panicked because he figured he was going to lose one of the biggest draws he would have from a spectator standpoint. And so Economaki goes, um, I want to say, on the offensive, trying to figure out exactly what he could get uh, Ward in to drive at this race. So basically out of options uh, on the sports car side of things, he found out there was a guy named Ken Bren. And Ken Bren, the owner of a midget. And when we talk about midget race cars, we talk about dirt track racing. And midgets were basically scaled-down versions of sprint cars, scaled-down versions of uh, open-wheel cars like the Roadsters we would have seen at the Indianapolis 500. They were very light. They weighed about 1,000 pounds with a full load of fuel. Pretty powerful. We talk about a um, this particular car that Ward drove had a 91 cubic inch Offenhauser four-cylinder that made about 120 horsepower. So... 1,000-pound car, 120 horsepower, but they had some deficiencies, especially when it comes to doing anything other than racing on dirt. The fact that they had really crummy brakes that were basically operated with a hand lever, Um, the fact that they had no real transmission to speak of, it was just an in-and-out box, so there was no shifting available, and the fact that uh, they were fairly limited kind of on gear ratios. They used a quick-change-style rear end. And again, these are cars that are normally zipping around three-eighths and quarter-mile dirt tracks. They're not typically turning left and right. Uh, beam axle front end with a suicide style buggy spring on it you know all the all the things that don't really make any sense for road racing are exactly what a midget car was so 
when Economaki calls Ward and says, hey, man, you should drive this midget, Ward blows him off. He says, listen, I, I don't want to look like a fool. You know, hey, I'd love to make the money, but I'm, I don't want to look like an idiot, you know, going out there and, and showing up with this thing. Well, it turns out there were a couple other guys that were coming in with midget racers as well. Guys that um, guys like Tony Bettenhausen, Dwayne Carter, Brett Brooks, Russ Clark, four very well-known dirt racers were all coming with midgets as well. And when Ward heard about this, he thought, okay, even if I don't fare that well, if I beat those guys, I don't really look that bad. So he decides to, to sign off for, with Bren to compete at this race. And what we have to understand is, he shows up, Brent shows up with a Cadillac towing this midget on an open trailer with a spare off engine in the trunk of the Cadillac. It was awesome in terms of why it was awesome because the competition car-wise and driver-wise was unbelievable. You had machines like a former Juan Fangio-driven Maserati Grand Prix car, literally a Formula One car that had won events across the world. That was driven by a guy named Chuck Day. A guy named George Constantine that had an Aston Martin that had won the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1959. This is a car, the the uh, kind of original, if you will, factory works car from Aston Martin that was uh, just a, a beautiful, beautiful piece that also flew. The model, of course, was the DBR1, had a 4.2 liter engine, and George Constantine basically won everything there ever was to win at Lime Rock in this car. If you showed up and he was there, you might as well have gone home. Um, other luminaries and cool cars included stuff like um, the actual Bill Mitchell Stingray Corvette, the one that was the model that would that would that would actually become the Stingray Corvettes of the 1960s. That was driven there. You had people like Denise McCluggage there driving Porsche 550 RSs. Um, it was a, a murderer's row lineup of the coolest cars in the world and really the best sports cars in America because these cars were all imported after they had done kind of amazing things all over the world. Pedro Rodriguez was racing there. Rodriguez, a Mexican racer, was one of the best sports car drivers in the world. Lance Reventlow, of course, the Scarab cars. Reventlow was there competing. Um, a literal who's who, including John Fitch. And John Fitch is a guy who really was I would argue America's first export in terms of a race driver. He was a factory works driver for Mercedes in the 50s, and he was the general manager, the first general manager of Lime Rock. So a man who knew the place intimately, knew everything about it, and who had raised the ire of Roger Ward by kind of snaking his ride at the last minute. So how was the race set up? And why was the midget car successful? Well, now that we know a little bit about the competition, let's talk about the midget itself. We mentioned it's uh, very light, has a single-speed uh, in-and-out box-style transmission, and it was suited for short squirts. This was not a car that was going to make a lot of speed on the straightaways because it just didn't have, the one, the horsepower, and two, the gearing to do it. The whole thing was seen as kind of a funny experiment by the sports car set, and they were laughing a little bit. Until qualifying started, because once qualifying started, um, Roger Ward went out there, and during qualifying, right after George Constantine had done it, reset the track record. So Constantine goes out and qualifies, sets the track record of, for speed. And then right after it, Ward goes out there and resets the track record. So he averaged 83.5 miles an hour around Lime Rock during qualifying. And this was a uh, car that was running a 460 rear gear, and they were turning the engine about 7,300 RPM. So Ward makes these qualifying runs and thinks to himself, 
oh, we got something here. I mean, he loved the way the car worked. He had one or two off-track excursions during the event, but not big-time stuff, just kind of dropped a wheel off. And frankly, he was a dirt track racer anyway, so he might have been even more comfortable when that car dropped a wheel down there. And the laughter kind of stopped. Now, it should be noted that Ward's was the only real competitive midget out of the five that showed up. His was the only one that really had um, a shot to compete. The other cars, just for reasons of setup or reasons of driver comfortability, just weren't that good. But his was really fantastic. The setup for the race, you had the qualifying that we mentioned. There was a 20-lap heat race, a second 20-lap heat race, and then a 60-lap kind of finale. And... um, one can only imagine what the response was not from the crowd they must have loved it but from the other racers when Ward went out there and actually set this lap record it had to have gotten everybody's attention and it really is a study in physics it was a light car that had decent horsepower and as it turns out because of the fact that there were no real kinks in this racetrack Ward was able to carry a lot of speed through a lot of these sweeping corners wasn't necessarily sliding the car around, but he was able to to kind of understand how the midget car worked on asphalt very well and uh, and made a real kind of spectacle of it. Now, there was still some um, uh, doubt as to what would happen with this thing when you actually had to turn it 20 laps and then another 20 and then 60. People didn't think that the little engine was going to live because they were going to work it really hard. And they also figured out that, you know, once the other racers kind of got got Ward's game figured out they'd be able to run him down on the straightaways and and certainly be able to kind of outrun him over the course of that uh, longer race now to combat this Ward gets out of qualifying comes into the pits and he says to Bren we need to change the gear ratio so they had a 460 in the rear end and they went to a 448 which maybe slowed acceleration out of the corners down but gave him a little more top end speed And they decided to spin the motor a little bit harder, too, to the 76, 77, uh, 100 RPM um, kind of zone. They did the the gear swap in 20 minutes. If you've ever worked on or worked with a quick-change rear end, you know it's very simple. Take the rear cover off, put a couple of cogs in, bolt the rear cover back on. Not something that anybody in road racing probably would have ever seen again. So now it's time for the first heat race, and as we mentioned, Ward's on the pole, you have George Constantine right behind him in that Aston Martin, and when the first heat race begins, Constantine really charges out and uh, takes a fairly significant lead, but by the end of that first 20 laps, Ward is basically rolling right behind him on his bumper. I mean, chased him right in. And one of the things that was interesting is that uh, you know Chuck Day, one of the guys that was there, he had that Maserati, Maserati Formula One car, um, when he was leading war during some of these some of these heat races, um, he would on purpose put his car on the dirt, kind of drop a wheel off to throw kind of garbage and rocks and dirt at uh, <laughs> at Roger Ward as some sort of a defensive mechanism. But um, the fact that Ward, the hard scrabble dirt track racer that he grew up being, that that was literally the last thing that was ever going to bother him because he had spent his whole career dodging rocks and parts and mud and muck at uh, dirt tracks across America. So day. Um, you know, trying to be a little bit of a, you know, Doug Dastardly or Dick Dastardly figure here, uh, failed miserably in that respect. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So first, uh, first heat race, Constantine wins by a very slight margin. Second heat race, Ward goes out there and just absolutely destroys everyone. And now people understand what they're about to see that the weight of what's going to happen here is starting to settle on some people's shoulders and Akana Mackey for one had to have loved it 
The reporters there had to have loved it. It was this turn of events that no one could have foreseen. The midget looks like something Stuart Little would have driven, and it's on the racetrack with the most beautiful and powerful sports cars that the United States has to offer. I'd say the world, but the fact is the best cars in the world were racing around the world. The best cars in the United States had been bought and imported and brought in. But what you have here, talent-wise and equipment-wise, is the best of the best, and they're about to get their ass handed to them by this little dirt track car that had raced in 1,000 races and had been built in 1948. So this car from the late 40s that had been raced to death was about to take the fight to these beautiful, high-dollar, technologically advanced, most uh, handcrafted cars in the world. So the 60-lap race begins, and they played it safe. Brandon Ward came up with a strategy because what they knew was that the car weighed you know, 900 to 1,000 pounds when they started with uh, about a 175-pound load of fuel in the back of it. They knew they could make the 60 laps without having to come in for fuel, but they also knew that the car was going to get quicker and faster as the weight came off the fuel tanks, right? The more fuel they burned, the lighter the car is going to get, and in theory, the better it's going to work. So they play a conservative. They're, uh, they're in there, they're working along and, you know, kind of keeping a pace on Constantine, making him push his stuff, but they're not really working their stuff too hard. Incidentally, Tony Bettenhausen, um, one of the most uh, Hall of Fame decorated racers in American history, was employed as their pit sign guy because Bettenhausen's car was really slow, was off the pace. He kind of gave up early. So they put him to work as the, uh, as the pit board guy, which is kind of amazing. And so he was relaying messages to Ward as he was making his laps. So about halfway through this race, I should say a little bit after halfway through, lap 48 is when Ward finally decides to make his move. So lap 48 comes up. Um, Day Day now at this point is leading. So Day in the F1 car is out in front. Constantine blew up the car after the 21st lap, some problems with the rear end or engine. He's out after lap 21. So Chuck Day in the F1 car is leading the race. The open-wheel, beautiful Maserati, a car that had been driven by Fangio, had won races, had garnered international acclaim, and he was being chased by this little bitty midget driven by Roger Ward. They get to lap 48, and that's it. So Ward makes his move, passes day, and never looks back. There were 10,000 people there by every account, and the people were going berserk. When he got in the lead, absolutely went crazy. Not only did he get in the lead, he started to stretch it. But here's where a funny kind of side note comes in. Bettenhausen would erase the chalkboard when Ward went by, and he was leading by five to eight seconds at this point by all accounts, and would write one second, saying that he was only leading by one second. And Bren got kind of annoyed by this. He said, what are you doing? Why are you only telling him he's only ahead by one second? We're leading this guy by five, six, eight seconds. And Bettenhausen said, I've raced against this guy for 20 years. He is very lazy, and if he thinks he's got five seconds up, he's going to let off. And if he lets off, that guy's going to catch us and beat us. And so Bettenhausen, um, a prideful midget and dirt track racer that he was, wanted to see this outcome as much as as much as Bren did and everybody else did. So he was pushing Ward, even though Ward had no idea, to race a lot harder than he actually needed to because he figured Ward was going to slack off and, uh, and Day was going to come catch him in the Maserati. So as they're finishing up the race, um, they they run across the finish line. Roger Ward wins the event, wins the purse, wins his uh, or you know he'll collect on top of all of this his uh, appearance money, huge huge payday, and for a race that was kind of run on a lark for him. I mean it was a fun race and he ended up just making a scad scad loads of money on this thing, but he didn't care about that. 
I think one of the most fun parts is he went to Bren and said, hey, man, take all of it. You take the purse, take my appearance fee. He said, this is like the most fun I've ever had in a race car. And just take all the money. And he basically left and, and went off to do some appearance somewhere or went back to the West Coast, wherever he was going. But the reverberations of this um, the reverberations of this lasted a very long time. And they also spawned a kind of uh, interesting response from midget racers who then started to show up at road races to run their stuff. Um, they raced at places like Sebring and other and other famous road courses around the country uh, with absolutely no success. Um, you know, the problem was the short course at Lime Rock was was perfect for what this experiment was. And when you get to a place like Sebring where you have to be able to really wind the car out and make some speed on those long straightaways, the midget cars just couldn't do it. The physics, the driver ability, and um, the fact that they were largely underestimated is really what makes this upset um, this upset amazing. And there's a great quote from the Sports Illustrated story, which was written. Um, it's a story called A David Named Roger, of course, a reference to David and Goliath. And this was published uh, August 3rd, 1959, written by a guy named Joseph Raff. And... Uh, you know, I'll read the opening paragraph because it's brilliant. It said, The David and Goliath story was reenacted at Lime Rock, Connecticut last week when a midget auto slung its stones into the headlights of giants such as Aston Martin, Maserati, and Jaguar. The personable Roger Ward, who won the Indianapolis 500, had a chance to drive one of the larger models of Lime Rock's Formula Libre event, but his experience on the U.S. Auto Club's professional circuit led him to pick a Meyer Drake alcohol-fed midget for the curly one-and-a-half-mile course. It was the first time that anyone has ever tried such a specialized Speedway-type vehicle in a major sports car road race. Ward said his car had just a foot throttle, meaning it had only one gear, which he initially set at 460 for the first heat. The tiny 900-pound midget is powered by a smaller version of the engine plant, which won the honors for Ward at Indianapolis. It attracted all eyes at the start when it set a new one-lap course race record during qualifying at 1 minute .467 seconds, for an average of 83.5 miles an hour. We might as well junk them all, said one official, surveying the fleet of foreign sports cars as Ward came into the pits in his tiny race car. It's amazing. You know, when you when we think about people that are underestimated and cars that are underestimated, and maybe people that are a little bit smarter than the average bear who are able to take what appears to be a giant disadvantage and actually use it as an advantage, it makes for the greatest stories in racing. So when we combine Roger Ward's driving talent and Ken Bren's um, seemingly indestructible little midget car that had been raced for over a decade at that point, more than a thousand times, and we place them on the racetrack with these big names and big race cars, it just sets that David and Goliath story that that uh, is told so well in the Sports Illustrated tale. Um, if only the midgets had been able to be more successful at some of these other road racing events uh it, it may have actually detracted from what these guys did but they weren't and so because of the fact that it's like the one and only time that they this ever succeeded it makes it really special and the fact that it happened at such an iconic place as lime rock and you know you really need to you know you go on the google machine and look up the photos because the photos of ward in this little tiny car with these beautiful curvaceous sports cars next to it really is something else and the kind of postscript to this, um, among many, is that John Fitch would try to race in Indianapolis. And Roger Ward, um, 
apparently a guy who held a grudge at a professional level because Roger Ward, like, for the rest of his life, was, like, annoyed at John Fitch that he had stolen that ride out from underneath him, and he took a lot of pride in the fact that he had won and beaten Fitch so badly at his own racetrack. Um, Fitch would go to Indianapolis and not qualify, and Ward would go into the newspaper and say that he didn't even, didn't even run fast enough to warm the engine up. Kind of a shot across the bow for the, the sports car racers who had diminished the skills needed to compete in um, an oval track style event or an oval track style racing. Crossing those boundaries, crossing those barriers is uh, is always compelling in motorsports. Um, you know, one of the reasons I thought about this story and about the crossing of the boundaries and barriers was that the week I am making this show, John Andretti uh, died. He has died at 56 years old, very sad, passed away of uh, colon cancer. And John Andretti had a career that that spanned over those over those grounds. He raced NHRA top fuel dragsters. He raced Indy cars. He raced stock cars. He raced IMSA sports cars, and kind of proved that one guy can be good at basically everything. And that's what Roger Ward did on this fine day at Lime Rock in 1959. So that's the story of the greatest upset in American road racing history on this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. Stick with us. We'll be back with more history, with more cool stuff, and with more cool stories to tell next time.